Okay, so we left off on. Oh, I forgot to make dua for Sheikh Abu Vidda today when we started the stuff for Allah. Allah have mercy on him. Give us benefit from. Give us and him benefit from his knowledge in this life and the next. I mean. For this one, قال المصنف حفظه الله تعالى. The author says the following: May Allah preserve him, give him long life, and help him and us to benefit from his knowledge in this life and the next. I mean. He says, in what follows, I will give a few illustrations of presumptively authoritative text and legal interpretations. Many passages in the Quran and Sunnah appear at first to convey only one possible meaning, but upon closer examination turn out to be open to other interpretations. Too often Muslims speak out of ignorance on matters of interpretation as if they allowed for only one point of view and were closed forever to further discussion. So if you recall, we left off last time on this idea of um, thinking about the the way in which texts have reached us and the meaning of those texts and we talked about how the only time we can say with absolute conclusivity that something is absolutely true categorically true categorically whatever it might be halal haram whatever is well not halal haram wajib whatever it might, you know from those rulings then it has to be you know, the, the, the transmission is absolutely sound and the indication of the meaning is absolutely clear. And uh, otherwise, there's room for some level of debate. So he says, in what follows, I'm going to give some of those examples. Okay. In the, in, in the one, presumptively, in, in one presumptively authoritative text, the Prophet ﷺ stated, Whoever brings dead land to life shall own it. Whoever brings dead land to life shall own it. Interesting, I was listening to something recently about American history and apparently this was a policy that they had too at different points in US history. You know, if, if someone supposedly found land that wasn't being used, you know, there might be some argument around that, but they could like build a house on it and make a certain claim to it that they're bringing this land to life in a sense. And, uh, you know, again, you know, there's a lot of conversation, I'm sure, around some of those details. But the idea here is that there's land. Nobody's on the land. Nobody uses the land. Nobody's on the land. And it's hard for us to imagine because we live in Southern California. <laughs> you know, it's like you drive from here to San Diego and it's like nothing. Except for Camp Pendleton, everything is populated, right? And it's really hard for us to think about, I think, sometimes. But there are a lot of places still, even in the U.S., where... You know, it's pretty open, and in Canada for sure. I mean, Canada's population as a country is that of California, <laughs> and you've seen how big that country is, right? So there's a lot of space. So the idea here is that this, the Prophet ﷺ said, "Whoever brings dead land to life shall own it." It doesn't mean that it's actually dead in a sense. It means that they they're able to plant some things on it. They're able to cultivate it and use it. You know, it's not being actively used and they start using it. Legal scholars accept the hadith as an authentic transmission and agree that its wording is clear. So now it's interesting, right? So it's an authentic transmission. The wording is pretty clear and yet they still have debate on it. 
Still, they classify the hadith as presumptively authoritative. Dissent over the hadith's implications is based on consideration of its original context, not questions of grammar and semantics. The Prophet ﷺ functioned in different private and public capacities. He was a universal lawgiver, a governor and head of state, the head of a family, a personal friend, and so forth. Many hadith cannot be properly understood without establishing the context in which they were spoken, and that is the case with this hadith. So one of the works that kind of really starts to talk about this is the work that Dr. Jackson did his PhD on, wherein Imam al-Qarafi talks about the difference of uh, the tasarrufat of the qadi and the imam. So like the Prophet sometimes he was a qadi, he was a judge. Sometimes he was the imam, meaning the head of state. So when he says something or he does something, Whichever one of those you assume or you think that he's assuming at that particular time is going to affect your conclusion on what that hadith means. Right? Imam al-Qarafi did this. He talked about the Prophet as a qadi, as an imam, as a mufti, and as a muballigh, as a mufti, and then also just a general conveyor of the teachings of the religion. In the, in the more closer to modern period, or I guess the modern period, Ibn Ashur, Al-Tahir ibn Ashur rahimahullah from the <coughs> scholars of uh, Tunisia I want to say uh, he he expanded his work has been translated and he expanded this to 12 different capacities you know the prophet had those four but he also had other ones as well and he goes into the details of them and so on. So what he's getting at here is that it depends on how you look at it. And you see, even from the early imams, you have consequence here. So look at this. Imam Abu Hanifa regarded the hadith, whoever brings dead life, land to life shall own it, as an administrative provision that the Prophet ﷺ made as governor of Medina. Thus the hadith relates to agrarian, agrarian conditions specific to Medina at a particular time. Abu Hanifa did not deny the validity of acquiring abandoned lands by bringing them under cultivation as mentioned in the hadith, but given the hadith's original administrative context in his view, its application requires official permission to ensure that it is suitable for application in a wide variety of conditions in diverse times and places. Okay, so basically he held that when the Prophet ﷺ made this rule, he made it as the governor of a land. Okay, let's see why this matters. Imam Malik held a similar view. He required governmental permission for fallow lands lying within the green belts that surrounded traditional Muslim towns and cities. Since these areas were the property of the people, Malik exempted any land within them from acquisition through cultivation despite the fact that such lands were technically fallow. Malik did not require governmental permission, however, for lands lying beyond the green belts. So the area around the city, he basically said the same thing that it requires governmental permission the area around the city he said that you can't do it in this area and then outside of that you can so you can homestead outside of the certain boundary mm -hmm. but not inside not boundary. inside yeah and he said that it was owned by the community mm -hmm. that's what it says yeah public property they were the property of the people so in america the rule of the rule is you can homestead america that's how they expanded mm -hmm. so quickly they stole Native American land and then homesteaded sure. uh, the rule was you had to get a plot from the federal government and then you had about I think like three to five years to bring it to life basically mm -hmm. 
um, which is why you can still homestead today, but no one does it because the land that's left over has no access to any utilities. Mm -hmm. So it's very hard to make any use of the land. Um, mm. but, but you can go right now. But does it have access to water? Those are all gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I would that, imagine. that's the issue. If you can yeah. find a well on a certain land, you can homestead. Yeah. You can get permission from the U.S. government today and do it. That would be so cool. Just get a yurt. Put the yurt up. Call it a life, you know. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad. The mujahid and the one who goes to the mountaintop with their goats are not the same. They so so what. They so so what. Allah make us people of jihad. They, they don't know what you just said. <laughs> I, I thought it was funny. <laughs> <laughs> They're not equal. You know, there's hadith about the end of times and how there's two categories of people. Like one of them is the person who flees to the mountaintops with their goats and just like stay safe. The other one is the one who's in the mix of it. They're the mujahid. So I said that the mujahid has a different rank than the one who flees with their goats. So Allah make us people of jihad, inshallah. Imam Shafi'i's methodology is based on the premise that every hadith will be treated as a universal statement of law unless the contrary is proven through another explicit textual reference. Okay? A lot of words, big words. His methodology is based on the premise that every hadith will be treated as a universal statement of law unless the contrary is proven through another explicit textual reference. Shafi'i held, therefore, that the Prophet made the statement in the hadith in his capacity as a universal lawgiver. Thus, for a Shafi'i, no restrictions apply to the acquisition of revived lands and no government approval is necessary. Yeah, that would be quite interesting, wouldn't it? What is the context of Medina? Was Imam Malik's position? I would assume so. I would assume so. Is it first the word you want to use? In a sense, I mean it is. The Hakim chooses. You know, a lot of Muslim lands were under Hanafi rule even from early on, because of Abu Yusuf. You know, but um, Allahu Akbar. So Imam Shafi was like homestead wherever you want. And you own it? Yeah, it doesn't apply to America. America, you need government approval. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't go to don't go to like Joshua Tree. <coughs> the three Imams agreed on the validity of the same hadith, but interpreted it in three significantly different ways. Each of their readings has a claim to validity, although some may be arguably stronger than others. This is the point, right? Uh, another case where this comes up is I mean there's like tens of them but one of them that comes to mind right now is the issue of Salat al-Ghaib right this idea of praying janazah for someone who's not present praying janazah for someone who's not present right huh yeah I mean what's good in general is to have a policy <laughs> because otherwise everything can become just messy um it's hard to choose things, you know. When when do you do something? When do you not? Um, but the point is that we know from the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that when a Najashi died, the king of Abyssinia, that the Prophet ﷺ told the believers that he was that he was a believer, and he was a Muslim, and that we're going to pray Salat al-Ghaib for him, and they did it, right? When he's not there. It, it literally means Salah on a person who's not present Salatul Ghaib The Ghaib is the person who's not present, right? So the Madhahib differed 
Some of them said this is specific for this man because of the Prophet's knowledge. Some of them said this is specific to people of, that hold notable positions. Some of them said this is specific to people who nobody preyed on them. Some of them said that this is specific to people who, uh, it's not specific to anyone, it's, it can apply to anyone. <laughs> and all of them are taken from the same hadith. Right? You see how all of them can be taken from the same hadith. Uh, Nobody prayed on him. You're thinking, weren't there Muslims in Abyssinia? No, the, no they already migrated back. Mm -hmm. uh, but the hadith of um, the woman who used to speak the master, mm -hmm. does it say that Prophet made dua for her? He prayed. Did he, pray for her? he prayed for her, but he prayed for her at her grave. So it's not ghaib. Like, did he make dua or did he do the, the salat of janazah? I'm not entirely sure. Not entirely sure. But, like, according to the Hanafi school, you could probably argue that he could pray janazah at the grave. Because if. Like the if the when if the wedding or the the wedding of the person like the person who has the most right to pray over the deceased if the prayer is done over them without that person being there then they have a right to do it again and he's 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 the prophet yeah there was an interesting thing that happened there was a um, a teacher who passed away at New Horizon who while he was a teacher at New Horizon was not Muslim. When he got really, really sick, everybody was visiting, visiting, visiting. Mm -hmm. And like on maybe the day before he passed away, he became Muslim. They became Muslim with the Muslims that were visiting, visiting, visiting. But his family buried him mm -hmm. in a non-Muslim way. He was cremated. cremated yeah. So then at New Horizon, we had one of these salats for him. Mm -hmm. Because there was enough witnesses that mm -hmm. uh, confirmed he became Muslim. Mm -hmm. So they did a... They did... I don't know if, like, we I guess like he's cremated, you don't know where he is. Yeah, but they You can't, like, go to the grave and pray janazah. Mm. So they just held a janazah prayer for him at uh, mm. New Horizon. Mm. Interesting. So this happened actually not too long ago. We worked at a burial order, and the person, the young one was leading, a young person, he made a mistake and started doing four, he did five. Mm. And janazah salat? That's a really good question. There's no there's no sujud sahu. I need to put it on my list to ask the. That's great. Um. mistaken janaza. Uh, I'm not sure. 
It's as if I vaguely remember an opinion that has Janazah with five takbirs, by the way. <laughs> as a, there might be some like opinion out there s- somewhere in the Madaim. Would that invalidate the Janazah thing? Making an extra takbir? Mm-hmm. I don't know. The Shafis are cool with abstention. Mm-hmm. And abstention and Salat uh, al yeah. Well, this isn't, I mean, this is, it's interesting. I don't know. I'll, I'll ask, inshallah. Let's see. Let's see if I can get an answer for that one. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Bismillah. That's what I get for bringing up an issue that's not in the text. Okay, here we go. This is going to open up lots of cans of worms, but let's go. Bismillah. The second presumptively authoritative hadith recounts that a certain companion's mother asked him to free a Muslim slave after her death. The manumission of slaves is an act of worship and atonement in the prophetic law. The man chose to emancipate a non-Arab girl on his mother's behalf, but could not ascertain if she was a Muslim. He brought her to the Prophet ﷺ to verify what she believed in Islam, that she believed in Islam. The Prophet asked her, where is God? She motioned with either her head or her index finger toward the sky. There's different narrations. The Prophet then asked her, who am I? She pointed her index finger toward him and then toward the sky. The Prophet ﷺ declared her to be a Muslim and she was set free. Okay. Some Muslims cite this hadith as categorical, categorical proof that God has a physical location in heaven. Muslim theological schools, both Sunni and Shi'i, regard such a view as heretical and verging on disbelief because it contradicts categorical proof and is based on conjecture. When this hadith is contemplated in conjunction with parallel transmissions of the same narrative, its presumptively authoritative nature and, incon- and inconclusiveness as a theological argument become clear. Okay, it's going to keep going. Another narration of the same hadith adds that the girl was mute and could not speak at all, which explains her gestures and the Prophet's readiness to accept them as a proof of faith. It would also clarify why the companion was unable to ascertain that she was a Muslim, since the girl was a non-Arab, she may not have known Arabic well or at all, which would give an alternative explanation for the nature of the interchange between the Prophet and her. Another transmission states that the Prophet ﷺ did not ask her where is God, but who is God. Both wordings are unusual, however, because it was the Prophet's custom when asking people if they believed in Islam to say, Do you bear witness that there is no God but God? Another narration makes no mention of the girl's inability to speak. In it, the Prophet asked her the customary question, Do you bear witness that there is no God but God? And she replied, Yes, without making gestures toward the sky. <coughs> The account of the girl is authentic, but conjectural in meaning. The mere fact that she may have been mute or may not have known Arabic makes her an exceptional case, and exceptional cases cannot establish theological or legal norms. The hadith has nothing to do with designating a location for God in heaven. It is, however, a testimony to the Prophet's openness toward accepting declarations of faith. Yeah, no, don't go off on the theological thing here. No, it's just like, you, you hear this idea so much, and people yeah. fight over it so much. Oh, yeah, it's a big one. And like, there's really that much difference on, on like, the context? Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I so don't how, know. How are people using this as, like, 
as such a authoritative evidence for yeah. the physical location of God, I have no clue. That's very interesting. The next two examples touch on the legal status of instrumental music and producing two and three dimensional images of living things. Here's let the controversy continue. <laughs> the next two examples touch on the legal status of instrumental music and producing two and three dimensional images of living things. Okay. Wahed, wahed, wahed. Shwaya, shwaya. Okay, just as a reminder before we go into this. Dr. Omar's PhD is in law. Like all of, you know, he's memorized a poem that is a thousand lines in Maliki Fiqh. He, he's like, he, like, he's not making things up, just as a side point, you know, before we get into it. It is commonplace to hear that Islam unconditionally forbids both, right? Instrumental music and two and three dimensional images of living things. Yet there are noteworthy positions permitting them under certain conditions, as the following examples indicate. Also, remember, what is the topic of what he's mentioning right now? What is the whole point? Presumptive versus uh, authority. Even further back, the idea of respecting dissent, respecting differences of opinion, acknowledging the differences of opinion exist, and how that's really, really important as a civilizational value for us, and how we develop as a community. Yeah, you can say that. Like, you know, that that this is this is something that we have to accept, and if we can't accept it, we can't move forward on anything. That there that there will be debate, debate, and difference of opinion on things in the religion, and there's limits to that acceptable difference, but there will be acceptable difference. Okay. Uh, in any case. <laughs> In any case, whether music and images are judged to be prohibited or permissible in the law, each ruling regarding them is predicated upon readings of presumptively authoritative evidence. Islam's position toward both questions is not immutably fixed, like rites of worship. Uh, both issues are based on rationales and have tangible purposes, which leave their status open for discussion. The majority of legal scholars forbade music. Generally, they did so on the ground that music was closely associated with drinking, dancing girls, and licentiousness, which was often the case in Middle Eastern and South Asian culture. But there were notable dissenting views on music when performed in other contexts. The famous Andalusian judge Abu Bakr ibn al-Arabi and the notable scholars Ibn Hazm and Abdul Ghani and Nabulsi wrote legal opinions in defense of music. And Kattani, a contemporary Moroccan scholar, cites 20 Muslim jurists who wrote on various types of musical instruments and the arts of audition, Samara. Uh, Insha'Allah, we have uh, Nia to try to do something eventually with uh, uh, Sayyidina Ihsan and Kattani. You know, he lives here, and uh, you might notice that that's the same last name. <laughs> He's uh, Sayyid Ihsan and Kattani. He's the one who runs Sound Hearts. Oh, it's not. Yeah, Sayyid Ihsan, yeah. He's, um, he's Kattani. Kattani is one of the biggest scholarly families and, uh, like, families of scholarship and spirituality in the modern period, like, without without any debate. They're a huge family. Is he a descendant of, hmm? of the actual Kattani? Yeah, yeah. The one who wrote the books of Which one? 
There's Abdul Hayyid Katani, like all of the Asanid in the modern period, one of the big people that they go back through is Sheikh Abdul Hayyid Katani. There's there's a bunch of them. There's Muhammad ibn Jafar and Katani, there's there's like there's a lot. So he's he's here, mashallah, hiding and nobody knows who he is. So strange affairs of the Muslims. And many Muslim lands have hosp hospitals became uh, hospitals made regular use of musician musicians, comedians and teaching hobbies to cure the sick and the clinically insane. As a rule, Muslim hospitals were pious endowments under the supervision of Islamic judges. Their allowance of music, humor, and hobby therapy constituted legal validation of each. Similarly, Muslim, most Muslim scholars upheld the prohibition of producing two or three-dimensional images of animals and human beings. You see, he's not going into detail on this, right? It's very simple. Many legal scholars held that music was not musical instruments were not acceptable. Some of them held, hold a different opinion. That's all there is to it. Doesn't need like a whole lot of discussion, or you know. The point is just to point out the differences that they exist, and you know, may Allah forgive the people who pretend like differences don't exist. Similarly, most Muslim scholars upheld the prohibition of producing two or three-dimensional images of animals and human beings. They based their positions on numerous hadith from which they derived rationales such as preventing idolatry, precluding human beings from rivaling the creative power of God, and avoiding the strong, this-worldly focus that such images may instill. But without violating these rationales, modern Muslim jurists authorize the use of photo-identification cards and permit the use of anatomically correct models of the human body to teach anatomy, medicine, and related sciences. The 13th century Egyptian scholar Al-Qurafi, the same one that we mentioned a few minutes ago, one of the most brilliant and highly regarded jurists in Islamic history, mastered many technical skills and scholarly arts. He was known for his expertise in building astronomical instruments and other mechanical devices to which he often attached three-dimensional mobile figures. Al-Qurafi writes in his work, The Priceless Principles, Nafais al-Usul, which is a commentary on Al-Mahsul of Imam al-Razi. Mahsul is like a really big book in Usul and he wrote a commentary on that Usul Fiqh which is like <coughs> next level stuff uh, that he once he, he mentions in this book that he once designed a candlestick holder to tell the hours of the night the main candle changed colors with each passing hour the fixture contained a figure shaped like a lion whose eyes also changed color during the first hour of the night the lion's eyes would be jet black at the second hour, they turned bright white. The next hour, they became <coughs> intensely red, and they continued to take on different colors until the break of dawn. At dawn, the figurine of a little man, the prayer caller, Mu'adhin, emerged at the... <laughs> I don't know how to say that word. ...highest point with his finger placed to his ear, indicating that the time for prayer had come. And Qurafi regretted never having discovered how to make the little man actually call the prayer. Okay. So he made this, and he's... Without debate, one of the greatest legal scholars in all of Muslim history. Hmm? He's Maliki. And mm -hmm. Qarafi. Traditional Islamic art was functional. It invariably served pragmatic purposes. One sees this exemplified in calligraphy, mosque architecture, schools, bridges, rugs, pottery, and so forth. And Qarafi's can candelabrum. How do you say that word? Anyone know? Candelabrum. 
Sounds good. As he indicates, was also artistically functional. It was meant to serve as a clock for staying awake at night until dawn. All the visual elements of the lion clock were calculated to break up monotony and keep one alert. Although there was nothing frightening about the figurine of a lion with eyes that glowed in different colors, it served as a somewhat amusing diversion that seems to have hinted. Imagine that a lion like this were standing in the room. Would you fall asleep? The lion and the prayer caller and in Qarafi's candelabrum were not frivolous objects. The purpose behind them was akin to those behind modern photo identification cards and, on, and anatomically correct models of the human body. Okay, so he's saying there was a purpose for it. It wasn't just some useless thing. Oh man, we need to finish this section. Respecting descent means respecting the truth and recognizing that it often takes different paths and results in competing visions of reality. Because dissent is indispensable in the conquest in the quest for knowledge, Islamic scholarship regarded the compilation and study of dissenting opinions as an essential form of learning. Ibn Omar, who was among the most learned of the Prophet's companions, was widely known for the great value he placed on his extensive knowledge of dissenting opinions. He often said that he would not exchange that knowledge for the most valuable possessions on earth. Um, that's something, too, you see in different places, like... Uh, Imam Abu Hanifa praises Imam Jafar al-Sadiq about that at some point. I don't remember the details of the story, but basically there was an issue that happened and questions were put to him and he said, there's this opinion, there's that opinion, and he knew all the differences and stuff. And he said, like, this is very important, right? Like, to be able to study in that way is really, really important. So, that's one thing, you know. I know there's a little bit of bias involved, but that's one of my biases towards Al-Azhar is that Al-Azhar will give you a really broad stroke on the opinions that exist. I mean, sometimes it's like mind-blowing the amount of opinions that you would get on certain things and you're like, wow, I didn't know that one existed. And they're not even necessarily ones that you should always follow, but they're still going to tell you them. and. Uh, even sometimes, especially in financial matters and stuff, they would mention the Shia schools, they would mention the Zaidi school, they would mention, I mean, it's really interesting. So that, that breath is extremely important. Otherwise, we end up choking ourselves to death when we don't need to. Um, receptivity to dissent and counter counteracts rigidity and dogmatism. Familiarity with competing interpretations and different points of view leads to flexibility and intellectual maturity. For reasons such as these, Islamic scholarship looked upon well-reasoned dissent as a divine gift and a special mercy to humankind. Um, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, the Khalifa, said, It would not please me if the companions of Muhammad had not differed. If they had not differed, there would be no room for license in the religion. Saying, like, I, wouldn't, I, I like that the prophets had or the companions had different opinions because that gives us some space. It gives us some, some things to work with. You don't just have one position. And, um, you know, this is... So all of this is... Then it's going to make the same point, uh, emphasizing that and talking about what we mentioned before, that there's a level of... Uh, like... Uh, what, what does he say? There's a level at which, like, a lot of the positions, they're very reasonable conclusions, but they're not categorical. They're very reasonable conclusions, but they're not categorical, which is to say that you can't just, like, throw everything else out, right? Um, 
Some Muslims today confuse intra-Muslim dissent with discord and regard questions and dissenting opinions as a threat to unity. Unity grows out of general agreement based on discussion and free choice. Unity must not be confused with uniformity. Unity must not be confused with uniformity. Traditional Islamic societies did not promote uniformity. They promoted unity and diversity. Uniformity can only be imposed by intimidation and social pressure. It cannot extend beyond the range of the force that imposes it. Imposing uniformity does not strengthen societies, it weakens them. Respect for dissent, on the other hand, provides a basis for true social cohesion. By promoting self-respect and human dignity, the, operative, uh, the operational principle of respecting dissent fosters mutual understanding and creates the basis upon which a healthy community can be built. Okay? This is really, really important. Uh, one of the things that they say is good questions are half of learning. Right? Part of dissent is recognizing that there will be questions, there will be differences, there will be debate. That's one of the beautiful things about Imam Abu Hanifa and his educational methodology too. Which was that he basically had in his close circle big scholars in multiple disciplines and they would discuss things. And he would, he would go to them and be like, so what do you think about this issue? And they would like say, you know, we think this or this or this. And then he would kind of like throw a different angle at it and they'd be like, oh, maybe we should change our opinion on it. And then he would throw a different angle at it and then they'd change, you know, like he was just like that. So, but there's discussion and there's conversation and there's a recognition that there's going to be, but like that the requires some level of tolerance in order to be able to do that, right? Like you can't actually have a conversation and get anywhere if there's no tolerance involved in the conversation because then it just becomes a bunch of people yelling at each other and nobody's listening to anything. Uh, when the right to question is respected, arguments cease to be worthy of consideration unless they are based on convincing reasons and can stand up to frank discussion and honest discourse, right? So it actually improves the ideas that we have too. Because if you don't have a right to dissent, and it just descends into chaos every time there's a dissent, a difference of opinion, then the opinions that people hold actually become weaker. Because they didn't have any chance to like actually defend them and discuss them and talk about why they feel that their opinion is correct and hold it against other people's positions and so on. You understand what I'm saying? So now, like, they're very, very adamant about their position, but it's never been tested. <laughs> you know, it's, it, there's never been any conversation on it. It's just like, you know, it's because you can't have a conversation in the first place. Many Muslims believe that asking perplexing questions about Islam is not allowed. For some, it is shameful to ask such questions or to express doubts. Traditional Islamic scholarship did not regard it an impropriety to raise difficult questions about the religion or ask about one's doubts. Rather, it was a sin not to ask. One of the intellectual responsibilities of the Muslim scholar was to prepare cogent answers for such inquiries. In order to respond effectively to the types of questions that might be asked, whole genres of scholarly literature were composed in question-answer form. It was the scholars themselves who asked each other the most difficult questions. Right, so this is one of the, the cool things that you see like when you get to the higher level books, is that they'll have the arguments in, like he'll say, this is our position. And if someone says, what about such and such, then we say this. And if they say, what about this, then we say this. So they work out like the whole debate, and y so you watch the whole thing. And it gets you to think about like, okay, where's the question? Where's the answer? How do I think about it more clearly? And so on. You know, how do I think about the evidences and the way that they're employed and all of these type of things? And then develops the person's capacity to think in general. Um, 
uh, you know, again, uh, one of the reasons why knowing different opinions and stuff was so valued. Uh, actually, a lot of the early Muslims, they didn't refer to difference of opinion as difference. Ikhtilaf. They didn't refer to it as ikhtilaf. They referred to it as sa'a. Sa'atun. Sa'atun means expanse. Wasi'a. Like from the same root as wasi'a. Something that's wide. Something that's expansive. So when they refer to they wouldn't say, they wouldn't say in this issue there's a difference of opinion. They would say in this issue there's there's breadth. There's expanse. Is that connected to Sa'a as an hour? As in time is expanded? No. Mm-hmm. It's a different uh, different route. Yeah. It's 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 actually wow in the beginning. But because of the word form the wow is dropped. So it's a yeah. Wide, like from Wasir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Egyptians they say Sa'atek, right? Like your your expansiveness. <laughs> it's like a term of <laughs> honoring someone, <laughs> you know. Sa'atek. Yeah. It doesn't refer to weight, it refers to their <laughs> their uh, their loftiness. Anyways. So they would they would make critical inquiries into the apparent contradictions in the Quran and Sunnah. They raised questions about the greatest sanctities of the faith and the most fundamental precepts of the faith. The companions occasionally asked such questions themselves during the time of the Prophet them. The companion Abu Razin asked him, "What? Where was our Lord before He created creation?" It's a pretty like deep question, right? Where was our Lord before He created creation? The Prophet them answered, "He was in a state of complete hiddenness." Beneath which there was no atmosphere And above which there was no atmosphere Then he created his throne over the water So he he answered it Try to understand it Social justice is one of the core values And highest ideals of Islam Tolerance and openness to questioning and dissent Create an ambiance where commitment to social justice Can be meaningful This is really deep It's really deep It can be meaningful if you have an environment where you can have conversations, you can have dissent, then your commitment to social justice can be meaningful. It is a contradiction in terms to speak of social justice in communities that neither welcome dissent nor allow for questions. How did he write this 15 years ago? I don't know. It's like, this is a relatively new issue. And in, in, in these kind of, uh, you know, Ajib. Denying the right to dissent and to ask questions drives people away, disempowers the community, and condemns its membership to being passive onlookers. The operational principle of respecting dissent and the imperative to develop dynamic communities necessitate an atmosphere in which diverse opinions can be expressed and where serious questions can receive respectful answers. It's beautiful wording. You know, serious questions can receive respectful answers. The right to inquire and to dissent creates an organic system of checks and balances that helps guard against excess. This is also a really good point. You know, if you can't ask questions, if you can't inquire, if you can't dissent, then how do you guard against excesses? If you can never ask someone, you know, Sheikh says something and you can't ask them why did you say that or why do you think that or whatever, then like how do you, you can't, you can't tell them, I'm not sure if that's the right position, then you know, not with like disrespect or anything else, but just with like honesty and sincerity and everything else. Then how do you guard against excess if you can't do that? Right. Of course, like this, you know, you can say, well, because they're so good. But yeah, I mean, like we have to deal in the worldly realm. Can you that again? All kinds of things. I mean, 
all kinds of excess I mean, going across the boundaries. You know, crossing boundaries. So, again, you know, I, I think it's very, the very clear example is that if you have a religious teacher that you can't ask anything to, because if you ask them anything, it's bad adab. If you ask them anything, it's disrespecting their station or whatever, you know, things you want to say. Then, like, how do you have any checks and balances? How do you have, how do you have anything? I mean, <laughs> this is, nothing can be asked. You know? I counteract the point that Omar bin Aziz made and that we had women to operate and had license. What do you mean? In the sense that you've kind of boxed yourself in. Mm -hmm. And as a result, you've already limited your, your abilities to actually know and inquire and have license and know more about ikhtilaf in the first Yeah, but it's not necessarily only about ikhtilaf, right? It's about just dissent in general. Yeah. Like, I don't think that's the best position for our community and to be able to say that, you know, and to have a conversation around it and stuff. But if you can't question anything, then, you know, like, it's a free-for-all, you know? Hey, you know. Did you say 15 years ago or 5-0? 15. 15. <laughs> that just seems like really late to the game. Mm. So, like, I honestly would have thought that it would it would have happened a lot sooner, considering all the history that's been going on. Mm -hmm. It's actually quite shocking that it hasn't been brought up, like in like 1900s or which part like the whole descent or having difference of opinions and things like oh that. no no that's there forever oh okay yeah okay. yeah no 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 i'm talking about specifically his point about how if you have social justice circles uh -huh. that don't allow difference of opinion in them uh -huh. then the social the commitment to social justice becomes meaningless uh -huh. that particular point because that wasn't there when i was in college that that phenomenon of like this uh, like there's certain positions and you have to take all of them otherwise you're out thing right. in, in social justice circles that didn't exist when I was in college and that's like 15 years ago right that's when he wrote this but now that's like really really prominent um, it's like either you're on the you're on board with all of these terms and everything that comes with them or you're an oppressor you know so that's not healthy i mean it might you know whether or not it's it's true is you know whether or not the terms are true and that's, that's not my point my point is anytime in any side it could be on the left it could be on the right it could be conservatives it can be liberals it doesn't matter who it is whenever you have a group of people that are committed to some sort of idea but you're not allowed to talk about it you're not allowed to understand it you're not allowed to have any sort of like tension and discussion then you're going to have problems that's that's the particular the idea of difference of opinion and stuff goes all the way back to the companions. Yeah. Did you ever read that book, uh, Even the Angels Ask Why? Yeah, Jeffrey Lang's book. I don't think I ever read it. Even the Angels Ask, yeah. Heard it was good. I don't know if it was or not. I haven't read it. Yeah. Yes. What about the perks of the Yeah. Yeah, there's a hadith that says that uh, the people before you were destroyed by asking too many questions, basically, to their prophets. Um, those are like nitpicking questions. They're not, 
sincere, like important, bigger questions. They're more like I'm trying to be really annoying questions. You know? Uh, the camel, right? The cow, yeah. The cow. Yeah. The, cow. the example of the cow in the in Surah Al Baqarah is the good example of that, you know. They're told to slaughter a cow, they're like which one, which one, which one, which one until it becomes like the hardest thing for them. It kind of like also reminds me of children. You know, like when sometimes they do that, they have a line of question. Every now and then when a kid wants to be annoying, they have like a line of questioning that never ends. <laughs> it's like that kind of thing, you know. <laughs> it's not an actual, you know, uh, just a sincere question about the religion or whatever. You know. And there are certain, you know, questions that do go too far. Like there's cases where the one of them that comes to mind is when Omar was walking with another person and they came across like some water they needed to purify themselves and they came across some water and like the w there was nothing con uh, conspicuously wrong with the water and then the guy started to ask questions to the person that was near it like about its purity and stuff like that and Omar told him like stop you know these are not things that we need to ask as long as we can't see any issue like we're fine you know so there's there's certain you know that's there's a balance to it but yeah. Yeah, man. I don't know about that one. I know that that one's commonly said in the Muslim community. You know, if you go to someone's house and you shouldn't ask them if their meat is halal and so on and so forth. I don't know, man. I mean, like, if if you invite a Muslim to your house, you should serve them zabiha meat, like halal, in terms of like. Not necessarily hand slaughtered per se, but like you should at least offer them something mm -hmm. that meets the bare minimums of, of halal according to the, the stricter side. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as a guest, it's a problem. <laughs> I used to be more lenient on this. I've become more strict on it over time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to know like how you became strict. I mean, there's a, this is like a topic that comes up a lot, right? Yeah. I just want to know the, like the process. Of the process is very simple. It has nothing to do with fiqh. Okay. It has a little bit to do with fiqh, I should say. Like, uh, basically, it comes down to the issue of al-tib ta'amik tukun mustajab du'a. Like make your food pure and your du'a will be answered. Think of Sa'd ibn Abi Waqqas But like in the books of spirituality it's a huge thing. Yeah. That if you're there's a there's a relationship between your spiritual state and the food that you eat. So I just basically got to the point where I was like, I don't want to take chances on this anymore. And like I think one of the good consequences of that was like, Do we really need to eat that much meat? I mean, seriously, it's out of control. And uh, we live in Southern California. There's, like, no shortage of options, you know. Um, yeah, maybe if you live somewhere and there's nothing you can find, you know. But even still, like, a vegetarian-based diet is not going to hurt you. <laughs> like, you'll be okay. You can still eat eggs. Eggs are wonderful. It's an incredible edible egg. Um, but... I don't know, that's basically what it's come down to. There wasn't like any sort of serious fiqh research that was done or something. It was just more like, there's no reason not to, and might as well. So, so your answer to, to whether or not you ask? Is it, is it 
Is that Isando? It sounds like that's like excellence and not necessarily fit. Yeah, for me, okay. it is. I mean, because again, I haven't reviewed the fiqh on it. Uh, there's very, very prominent, like MJ is a very prominent and legitimate fiqh council. You might not agree with all of their methodology and stuff, but they're very respectable and prominent. And they said that poultry is fine and that meat is disliked. Um, hmm? Poultry is okay. For what? For Kita, like in the grocery store. And, and beef is okay. They said, that's what they said. I mean, beef is disliked because of like something to do with the way that it's slaughtered. Whether or not someone wants to take that position, you know, it's up to you. Then you have on the other side people like Sheikh Hamza Maqbool and Sheikh Abdullah Nana, and they're like really hardcore that it has to be hand slaughtered and everything else. So now you have think, uh, two sides on the spectrum, right? To be fair, this whole hand slaughtering thing is it's it's the subconscious. Beef is contaminated now. So I think beef is contaminated anyways. I mean, like. The whole thing is a mess. <laughs> the whole thing is a mess. Allah scary. help us. <laughs> Meat is scary. Generally, when you go to these houses, like when he was asking, like we know, like you know, like you know who you go yeah. to, like who's if you know if your friends are not. You, you know, kind of know, yeah. You kind of know, so we don't ask, but we we kind of know and just just like eat their rice. Eat the other stuff. <laughs> 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 no, but like, <laughs> like your rice is amazing. You're not going to point that out. You're just going to, there's a lot of options and there's one night you don't eat meat. And I think we passed that. Like, we don't ask it. We ask it like um, invitations or weddings. That's wedding. not the issue. The issue is that if you don't eat it, you may offend the host. Like, why are you not eating meat? No, but like, and then you got to tell them. Then you got to tell them and be like, because I don't know if your meat is halal, brother. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's gonna get bad. Uh, it's gonna get bad. <laughs> we didn't get there <laughs> next week, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, these things are tough, you know. I th but again, you know, here, here's a, there has to be respect for dissent. And, and, it, and it does go both ways. It's, so um, some people are gonna say, well, if there's respect for dissent, then why are you making a big deal about their meat? Well, if there's respect for dissent, then why do you why are you making a big deal about them not eating your meat? <laughs> you know, like it, it does go both ways. It's not a. Uh, That's a hard one. Yeah. Because I know a lot of the. Yeah, a lot of people the yeah, sound are very strict about. That. Very strict. Like they, if they didn't see you pray, like if you don't pray five times a day in the masjid, they won't they won't even touch your meat. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, some people are really strict on it. Just they're worried. Yeah. That's scary. I didn't even think about that. Now I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mom makes my brother slaughter chickens for her. Really? Yeah. Because of one time. Like one time she's like, she was at a, a place where they, they slaughter. And she's like, you let that person slaughter the meat. Hmm. Like, I don't think he's Muslim. Hmm. And he was Vietnamese mm -hmm. and, and she heard him speak Vietnamese mm -hmm. she's like I don't think he's Muslim mm -hmm. and, and she asked mm -hmm. and she's like okay I'm not gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna know every person who slaughters my chicken now yeah. yeah you know one thing that kind of changed my perspective uh, I don't know changed my perspective but I just thought was like I was thinking about 
is that the general rule is that we don't kill things, right? Like the general rule is that we don't kill things. So meat, uh, the chicken and the meat and stuff that we eat is an exception to the rule. <coughs> Actually, that's one of the discussions in the fiqh is that is the origin, is the default ruling on meat that it's halal or that it's haram? You know, like this whole question of default ruling. Default ruling is permissible in things that don't relate to worship. Default ruling in things related to worship is that they're not allowed. Um, like, one of the things that's quite often said is that the default ruling on meat is that it's not allowed. And it be, so we assume that it's not allowed unless we know that it's killed properly. That, that's, that's the default ruling on meat. You know, regardless of which position you take. Say you say you take that Anu Kitab is I mean you have to ask serious questions on what did the scholars define as Ahnul Kitab? That's why I haven't done the research. What did they define as Ahnul Kitab and do people here meet that criteria? That's a whole different conversation. Um, but you know. And what are the assumptions that are being made? And are you allowed to make assumptions when there's a default of impermissibility? So the assumption that's made is that most of the people that are working in slaughterhouses are of Latino background, and if they're from Latino background, then they're probably Christian or Catholic, or you know. That's an assumption. Are you allowed to make an assumption when the default is impermissibility? Assumption's not good enough, technically speaking. So, like, these are all questions, you know. Allahu alam. I don't know. I, I haven't studied the fiqh of it. Alhamdulillah, uh, my parents are very reasonable people. They only pretty much like have halal meat in their house now. If they cook and they know that we're coming, like it's all halal. It's alhamdulillah. You know, I don't know. I didn't even ask them to do that. They just started doing that. Alhamdulillah. Um, but I know that especially when you have a mixed family, that can get very complicated. So you know, the 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 other positions exist, and you know, I don't I don't know that. You know, not inclined to think that all those people are completely nonsensical. Uh, all these big scholars who held these positions. I mean, Dr. Muzammil is not a child. Uh, you know, he's 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 a heavyweight in his own right. And these people in MJ are heavyweights too. Yes. Um, there's an article if anybody wants to read it called Dayyid, the Foundation of Ethical Eating and Conscious Consumption." Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He's gonna he's gonna take it on another level. Yeah. Imam Dawood Yasin. Yeah. So he's raising now the question of because the Quran says that the food should be halal and tayyib. So we only usually talk about the halal side of it. So what about the tayyib side? Like good and pure. Good and pure, yeah. So like how does that affect factory f factory? Like clean, good, pure. Supposed to be fed what it's supposed to be fed. Treated and treated in a decent way. All of those kind of things would be that that would be tayyib. It'd be good. Something that's good, you know. Can't really call these chickens that are. I mean, the whole thing is so bad, right? It's like even I was watching this thing. They were saying that the free-range chickens are worse than the caged ones. Because they 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 free range them in the same space, so like before they used to have their little cage. At least they couldn't eat each other, but they free range them in the same space, so they're like eating each other. The whole thing is a mess. It's worse, uh, not free range, cage free or something. They have like all these different terms, right? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's cage free. So cage free is just caged, same space, just no cage. Yeah, even free range has the same 
Free range, yeah. 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 And then if you and then if an hour of playtime, they're in like twenty three hours solitary. Allah forgive us for these things, man. Because we wanted our hamburgers so much. But inshallah things will change. There is a little bit of a push to change some of these things. Inshallah we can you know and by the way, in the end it's all markets, right? Like why why does the halal food market in the in the UK why is it like so vast? It's because people are really strict on it. So it comes down to like if all the Muslims are really strict on it, the opportunities will arise because it's a big market. The end. It's a big market. So same thing with the all organic and all these things. It's the market gets bigger, then bigger players get involved. Inshallah, you know things so will get better. So like ethically, let's say meat from a certain market is you know it's better for the animal, but like it had to travel more miles. Hmm. So well, like see, like that's one reason why for like a while I didn't want to eat halal food because I didn't want to travel 30 minutes to a market. Hmm. But now that I move, I can, instead of going to like a halal market, I end up going to a kosher one because hmm. it's like half the distance. Mm-hmm. So I just end up doing that. Mm-hmm. But I think you're talking about the transport of the meat. Like and what that does to the environment too. Like the, yeah. like the Australian market for me mm. is a lot more ethical than the American halal mm-hmm. market for me. But then it gets transported across the globe. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. But don't they freeze it? Yeah. Yeah, but it's still being tra- like the the carbon oh. carbon footprint that comes from oh. traveling it all the way across the, the world. I know that the animals yeah. are. Just the way clothes, man. I, I don't know. I yeah, don't just well, at least my clothes, I can buy like four items and be done. You know, <laughs> the food I'm eating it every day. Uh, it's it's Basic knowledge. Yeah. 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 But all of these things are totally possible. Like the the if people care, the market will be there. And it goes yeah. back to his original question, it's like, you know, I think you know, we always feel like not normalizing something because we're afraid we're gonna offend somebody. So the more we normalize it, the more the host, the guests, the grocery stores, the restaurants will you know, we had we had a, a huge group of Hindu friends that he worked with. They always bought halal when we went to their house. They were so mm-hmm. accommodating. To yeah, them. yeah. The, uh, other people will do other it way faster than our own people. Our own people get mad at you. They'll ser- they'll purposely serve you food that's yes, not like that. Yes, they would call us and say, "Where's the stores? Where should we buy from?" It's crazy. Just to make sure that everything. And they didn't know yeah. if they even ate meat. They hit me. Did your friends? Chicken. They ate chicken. Yeah, but yeah. for us, they would make sure if we ever went to their home. To you know, go to the halal market. Yeah, you should so just tell them though that I'm fine with vegetarian food. You know, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I'm okay with vegetarian. They would not buy beef, but Yeah, so interesting. Subhanallah. What about oh man? Okay, so meat consumption. You want to lower it, but like, what if like, you know, it's your mom. Yeah. Like my mom and dad, it's like very important that I eat in front of them. Yeah. And eat what they give me. Mm-hmm. 
and it's like really disrespectful like not to eat it mm -hmm. but it's like so you just eat it <laughs> yeah i mean you just eat it and like you know make dawn <laughs> <laughs> with your family, I mean, family's family, parents are parents. Yeah, the the blessing of your parents' food is, especially if she's making your brother slaughter the chickens, like it's <laughs> the blessing, inshallah, is greater than... That's true. <laughs> they say, actually, that even in the books of fiqh and stuff, they say that the food of the righteous, there's a rukhsa in it. Like there's a, there's a, a dispensation. There's a facilitation when it comes to the food of righteous people that you don't have the same restrictions on how much you eat and stuff like that. Anyways, we're going to fall off the deep end if we don't close this here. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam 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 wa